G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. As you know, the Federal Parliament is now on a break until February. One of the things that they will consider next year, first up, are going to be amendments to its controversial encryption legislation. Now, there was a standoff between the government and the opposition, you might recall, over a bill last week, over this encryption legislation, uh, which would compel tech companies to provide our national spy agencies and police with access to encrypted data. The opposition allowed those laws to pass, saying they didn't want to be responsible for delays if changes might prevent a terror attack over the Christmas New Year break. So a conversation today about what is being done to protect Australians from the rise in terrorism. Right now, as we speak, there is an international terror conference that's underway in Melbourne. You might have your thoughts. We'll invite you to participate in the conversation very shortly. Our special guest over this next hour is Dr. Bernie Power. He's a missiologist at Melbourne School of Theology and a lecturer with the Centre for the Study of Islam. Bernie Power is an expert on comparative religion, and we usually take things a little deeper than just uh, talking about the facts of what happens in terror attacks and who is to blame in these areas. So uh, great to have Bernie Power back with us. Bernie, welcome back to 2020. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Great to be with you. Bernie, you are an expert on comparative religion. So this is an area, and I've got to say, in mainstream media, you don't often hear uh, issues to do with comparative religion when people are discussing terrorism. But this is one of the, you might imagine, that ordinary people would think of as one of the biggest dimensions that ought to be discussed. Do you often feel like when you're looking at the headlines that you've got a lot to contribute but no one's asking you? Yes, uh, and particularly when it comes to Islam, there's a, a lot of uh, political correctness. So immediately, uh, the first thing that when uh, this recent attack happened in Melbourne was the police were saying, oh, we don't think it's a terrorist uh, incident or we're not making that connection. But by the next day, it was pretty clear that that was the, a connection and that this man was a, uh, had... Um, uh, had had dealings with uh, the Islamic State and was doing this out of a religious motiv- uh, motivation. Now, we might get on this point just for a moment, just to pause and reflect, because sometimes uh, you don't want the media or the police to be making announcements too early to say this is a terror attack and uh, we're going to blame the Islamic community. Uh, but you do want them to actually name Islam when it is discovered, or when it is disclosed, or there is evidence to the uh, to the obvious uh, that this is a terror attack and that there is a connection to a religious group. How do you see the way that police actually make those announcements when there is a particular attack that's under question? Yes, 
they will uh, increasingly they're starting to use that uh, language and they'll talk about a, um, an Islamic inspired terror attack uh, but uh, usually they, they'll hold back on that as much as they can and they'll also be uh, very keen to say well you know this doesn't impact the whole of the uh, uh, the Muslim community. So they, they want to kind of play their, ca- their cards carefully uh, in those areas. And I think that's probably a wise thing. Sometimes we can be critical of the authorities uh, for holding back. Uh, we don't want them to hold back endlessly once they know that it is. We want them to be able to say that, but I suppose there is a certain criteria they've got to tick off uh, to confirm that what they're saying is actually right because it is possible, isn't it, uh, that we could blame uh, the Islamic community or extremist elements within the Islamic community for a terror attack uh, a little prematurely. So uh, there is a certain sense in which we can be tolerant of a short delay, but once there has been evidence to the obvious, uh, then we do want the authorities to be able to name that as an Islamic attack. Yes, that's right. And um, the the other incident that we had in Melbourne was the um, car uh, with the car attack by this guy James Gargasoulis, who clearly suffered from some mental health issues. And uh, people assumed that this was a uh, a terror attack. Some claimed that he was calling out Allah Akbar as he drove through. It. That wasn't confirmed by anyone. Um, so yeah, it's good to. You know, not jump in straight away and say this is what's. Uh, you know, we believe that this is a terror attack unless there's some clear evidence for it. Now, Bertie, as we lay a little foundation here, and we'll invite listeners to call in shortly. But you, in fact, had some personal connection to some of those who were charged recently with conspiring uh, to a terror attack. Uh, you are on the streets. Uh, in your favourite location every weekend and talking to people about these issues. Give us a little uh, connection point here as to uh, your closeness when it comes to the way you are able to uh, talk about these issues with the Islamic community. Yeah, so about five years ago, uh, it was brought to our attention that there were a couple of Muslim information tables that were set up in Melbourne uh, that were passing out uh, um, information about Islam and inviting people to become Muslims. And so as Christians, we were challenged by that. So we then set up our own tables, and uh, we've now got three of them, so um, uh, beside the three Islamic tables that were there at that time. And in one of the tables outside the State Library, there were um, a couple of young men and an older man, and we got to know them uh, and talk with them about their Islamic beliefs and um, developed quite a good relationship with them. We took them sweets during their Eid and um, would often have chats about them, about their family life and whatever. And these were uh, uh, two of these men were arrested uh, just two weeks ago um, and they, the police are saying that they were making attempts to buy an automatic rifle so they could, in, quote, kill as many people as possible in Melbourne. So it was a, a bit of a surprise to us. Um, we'd known that they'd come from kind of a fundamentalist perspective but didn't realise that would push them over the line into um, violent, radical Islam. 
And when you're talking to people on the street or those who've set up a table and they've got a, a motivation there, haven't they, to win converts to Islam, people who'll be, they've seen things online or seen television programs and maybe warming towards joining an Islamic uh, religious experience uh, but you're actually quite happy to go and talk to these people and usually they're quite open to a conversation aren't they? Yes they are and we, the way that we brand our table is as Jesus loves Muslims so do we and so people, Muslim people will come and talk to us about Islam. Um, other people come and talk to us about Islam as well. And we use this as a, uh, an opportunity to, to have that conversation with them about Islam and Christianity, and particularly how Jesus fits into this, because we um, Christians and we want people to, to know and to love Jesus uh, and follow him. I'm always thrilled to hear of how your motivation works in all of this because uh, as I introduced you in the introduction there, uh, Dr. Bernie Power, uh, you know, you're an academic, so there is a sense in which uh, all of that time that you're having conversations with people on the streets, uh, there is not only this motivation as an academic to be gleaning those sorts of connections to the sorts of things that you are uh, truly an expert on when it comes to comparative religion, but you're also uh, governed by a certain motivation, which is about actually connecting with, in a friendly way, uh, with a way that might bring truth into a conversation with a person who is of Islamic faith. Uh, give us a little insight into your motivations for being on the street. Yeah, so we, uh, um, we, uh, we uh, my wife and I worked uh, in the Middle East for 20 years um, seeking to live as Christians and to share our faith with people and there we were very restricted in what we could do because of uh, uh, the fact that these were often 100% Muslim countries but back in Australia there are no such restrictions and so we're really glad to be able to get out and to, to talk with people uh, talk with people about Jesus and also talk about the issues within Islam we uh, um, a lot of the material on our tables refers to things like uh, the, the the um, life and the character of Muhammad. Uh, it, it raises theological issues that Muslims um, are interested in, and that opens up some really good discussions. Just uh, last week, I uh, met a young man from the Middle East uh, who's come to Australia to, to, to do his PhD, and uh, we had a discussion, and in that I said, have you ever been to church? He's only been in Australia for a couple of months, and he said, no, I haven't. I said, well, would you like to come? So we went along to church on Sunday night together and then had dinner and for two and a half hours afterwards had this long theological discussion about um, Jesus and, and uh, Islam and the Bible. And um, he took a Bible and said he'd read it. We'll meet next week and, and talk about that as well. So it's really um, recognising that you know the gospel is something that's able to transform people transform people's lives and i want to put that into the conversation i know there's important things to talk about but this is important too i think because is it a difficult thing to invite a muslim person along to your local church because as you say you've got this comparison to what it was like when they might have been risking their life in a islamic country but in australia uh, it's certainly legal and I'm not sure whether it's acceptable within Muslim community, but is it an easy thing to invite a Muslim to church? And are they likely to say yes if you make the right invitation? 
Yes, and we've done it other times before and seen people come to faith through it, so that's pretty exciting. And, uh, yeah, often they're curious about what happens to church. Uh, often, you know, having come from Middle Eastern countries, they don't get invited uh, to many things, and many of them don't have many connections with, uh, with Australian Christians. And so I think it's a, a really key thing, and particularly around Christmas time, uh, a great opportunity to invite um, any Muslim friends and neighbours along to, to your church services. Um, yeah, just a very natural thing to do. Bernie, let's get into uh, some of the, uh, the the more difficult things to talk about when it comes to our national security, uh, terrorism in Australia. Is the government doing enough? How is Australia dealing with this whole issue of terrorism? I wonder whether we might start with the idea that uh, that there is some form of definition around what makes terrorism terrorism, and I suppose that's something that's a little fuzzy around the edges for a lot of people. How do you actually define what is a terrorist act mm, yeah so in the national security website from the australian government they define it as um, an act which is done with the intention of coercing or influencing the government or the public by intimidation for uh, to advance a political religious or ideological cause and so terrorism is different from uh, criminal activity like when say biker gangs go and uh, rob a liquor store or the underworld goes and kills somebody that they don't like in that terrorism has an ideological or a religious goal and they're going to use violent means in order to promote that. So that's interesting because uh, that actually is a little more uh, more deep than the idea that if someone has a gun and they open fire on a crowd, you might say that's a terrorist act, but it's actually a terrorist act too to try to procure a firearm with the intent to actually shoot people. Is that the way you would you would actually deepen that idea of what a what a uh, an act of terrorism is? Yes, and so for the. Um uh, legal system intention is really key so currently there's about uh, I think the number might be nearly up to 50 people that are in prison uh, in Australia's jails uh, that have been found guilty of terrorism offences and that wasn't because they carried them out but because they were making plans to carry them out so these three young men that were arrested in Melbourne last week the fact that they had plans to procure a gun uh, even though they never did and they hadn't identified a clear target or a timetable, that was enough to get them um, uh, arrested uh, for terrorism offences. And uh, let's talk through some more things that sometimes are a little bit unclear. I wonder, uh, I asked the question as I was promoting our conversation today, if listeners knew what the current threat level is in Australia for the likelihood of an act of terrorism occurring. Uh, there's some clear things that the government has on their uh, website uh, dealing with these issues, but uh, what is the threat level at the present time, Bernie? Yeah, so there are five uh, threat levels, um, and the current one is probable. So there's uh, uh, the first, uh, the uh, bottom one is um, not possible. The next one is uh, possible. Then you have probable, um, and then likely, and then uh, like imminent. Um, it's not the exact terms that they use, but um, that that's where it is. So where they would say that. Um, 
Actually, I've just got it here. Um, they would say that the um, chances okay. there there are definite um, uh, threats out there, and um, the, the two uh, the two top ones. Certain is at the top. Certain is and at the top. Uh, expected is second. Uh, probable is third. So we're actually three up from the bottom. The bottom one is not expected, then there's possible, and then there's probable. And we're on the middle tier there of that threat uh, uh, system. So, uh, And I wonder whether what are your thoughts on, on the fact that it is on probable right now because uh, that might, for some people, uh, be a little bit scary. Mm, yes, yeah, yeah. Well, knowing knowing that it's not, uh, so they'd say that there's individuals or groups that possess the intent and capability to, to conduct a terrorist attack. Um, yeah, so it's they they haven't got information about um, uh, a, a plan for one, but they know that there are individuals out there who um, would be thinking about that. So that that's why it is. So I think that's probably a, a good situation. I'm amazed at how good our security apparatus is in being able to detect these things. Um, the fact that we've had... So they say that there's been... Um, well, according to David Irvine, the previous head of ASIO, he said they had uh, uh, in or detected hundreds of of attempts of people who were thinking about terrorism and it had prevented those attacks. In fact, we've only had probably um, uh, a dozen or so in, in the last um, 15 years. It's uh, pretty, uh, yeah, pretty remarkable. So hundreds prevented because of the good work of our, uh, of our security authorities. But I wonder whether you could let us in here, Bernie, on what the figures might be for the number of Australians who've had their passports cancelled because they are considered a terror risk, uh, because that's quite significant too, isn't it? Yes, yes. So the, um, the estimated figure, and the government doesn't give the actual figure, but it's about 300 passports that have been uh, stopped. And these were people that were planning to travel overseas to be involved in terrorism uh, overseas um, and so the government feels that it's actually better not to let them go over there and, and get that uh, training and experience and so they uh, stop the uh, the passports. So these three young men that were arrested in Melbourne last week were in that category. Their passports had all been um, cancelled this year. And then of course there's the number of phone calls and texts that have been intercepted by police that are connected with the possibility of a terror attack and uh, and that's uh, that's mind-boggling. Yes and these three guys the police said um, we'll need a few months to uh, to prosecute this case they had 17,000 phone calls and 10,000 texts that they had to read through and assimilate um, uh, to put their uh, prosecution prosecution case together. So, uh, yeah, there's a, a fair bit of work that these guys are doing. A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. This is 2020 on Vision Christian Radio. Our talkback line open, 1-800-316-316 to join in our conversation, how Australia is dealing with terrorism. Our special guest is Dr. Bernie Power, 
He's with Melbourne School of Theology, lecturer with the Centre for the Study of Islam. Bernie, let me come to some really uh, important questions because uh, there seems to be all sorts of doubts that are raised in a PC environment, in mainstream reporting, about where terrorism is coming from. I wonder if there is room for doubts or whether there is here uh, something that you can land on with some level of confidence. Uh, What are your thoughts about where terrorism is coming from? It's interesting if you have a look at the... um uh, the National Security website and their list of terrorist organisations. They, they list 26 of them and every one of them is an Islamic organisation. So that there's some kind of uh, hard evidence there that they have gone through and uh, tested the, these organisations and assessed that they, they are ones that are committed to terrorism. If we look at the people that have been arrested uh, and charged and convicted for terrorism, and there's currently, I think, about 50 people in Australian prisons that have been convicted. Um, every single one of them comes from an Islamic background. So that connection between terrorism and Islam um, is really quite strong, and I think that's something that shouldn't be ignored. And I think it's overwhelming, but from time to time you will get the story of someone who is some form of extreme right-wing neo-Nazi type who does something to make a political statement and uh, that's considered a terrorist act as well. Uh, Then you've got to be cautious there, haven't you? Because sometimes... Uh, that one act or that rare act uh, is sometimes uh, set up as being, well, this happens not just in Islamic uh, organisational terrorism, but it happens also in uh, others from a different perspective. What are your thoughts on just getting the balance right? Yeah, so it's interesting. Again, if you look at the uh, um, the material that the uh, Australian government has has put out, and they they ask for you know that, or they talk about examples of terrorist attacks. The only name that's mentioned in that is a guy called Peter James Knight, uh, who in two thousand and one um, attacked a, um, a, an abortion clinic in Melbourne and killed a security guard, and he himself was. Um, um, sentenced to life imprisonment as a result of that. So they name him uh, and they call him a Christian, but there's no other mention of Islam or Muslims in, in the 20, 21 page document um, that relates to generally Muslims being involved in that. Uh, so uh, I think, yeah, there's a kind of a lack of balance in this, in the realities. And, and when I've, you know, talked with. Uh, um, police particularly they said well we don't want to alienate the muslim community and so we don't tend to put that information out there uh, for that reason we're taking calls on 1-800-316-316 you might like to join in our conversation let's hear from jack in victoria hello jack welcome along yes good morning how do you do good to hear from you jack what are your thoughts for our conversation well, I'm very interested because I'm from Northern Ireland, you know, and I just came here in 1973, not to escape the violence, but uh, I can see, you know, all the things that happen there. It's exactly, you know, terrorist organizations use the same thing to polarize communities, the Protestants and the Roman Catholics, the Muslims or whatever. And, you know, I think anybody who supports, because it is a force, evil is a force, and anybody who puts money in it or doesn't speak against it and actually speaks 
for them, their tactics, and they're just as equally as guilty as, pu- as of pulling the trigger or setting the bomb. Uh, because, you know, Bob Dylan's song, uh, Hard Rain, it says, the executioner's face is always well hidden. But it's not hidden to God. He knows who, who paid for those explosives, who encouraged those people to do that, you know. So that's all I wanted to say. <laughs> Jack, that's a really powerful concept uh, that you're raising here, because what you're saying is you really do have to be uh, not of two minds here, uh, but you have to actually have a... A position on what you think about these terrorist acts and holds tightly to it because if you in some ways waver, if you some ways uh, want to be doubtful about what this all means, then you're actually aiding and abetting a terrorist attack just by the simple fact that you're ignoring uh, where the true cause is coming from. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying. I couldn't have put it more succinctly if that's the right word, but you know, I'm thinking of uh, the Nazis and the German people and that they didn't really speak up. I don't really know much about it, but really all that happened because nobody stopped it happening. Uh, in fact, by not stopping it happening, it encouraged it to happen. You know, we just have to uh, be more active in stopping things happening and actually um, not sitting on the fence because the fence is not a real place. It's just, uh, you know, you're just being um, neutral, you think, but you're just being um, part of the encouragement of the problem by not speaking up. Uh, don't be a fence-sitter. Uh, Dr. Bernie Power, what are your thoughts for Jack? Yeah, I, I think that's great, Jack, and, and great to hear from you. Um, yeah, and I think the, the you know, there's the saying, saying that the standard you pass by is the standard that you accept. And uh, I know for us, when we were looking at um, setting up our tables in the city, the Muslim tables had been there first, and by the fact that we were doing nothing meant that we were, in effect, um, uh, implicitly endorsing uh, them and saying this is quite okay you don't need a response but we felt that we needed to get out there and to provide an alternative answer and to you know as just as jack said if we're we're not speaking against them in effect we're kind of speaking for them so we need to uh, get out there and, and get a voice in the public arena in the public space Jack from Victoria, thank you so much for your call. Our talkback line remains open on 1-800-316-316. Bernie, just a a minute and a half out from news, uh, let me just ask you, and uh, Jack was calling in from Victoria, you're in Melbourne, and primarily it's our two biggest cities, Sydney and Melbourne, that have been the uh, targeted areas for terror attacks. Uh, Is there a heightened uh, sense of danger if you're living in Melbourne or in Sydney? Yeah, uh, well, certainly because that, that's where we get the largest, our largest population centres. We'd get our, certainly our higher percentage of Muslims. So, um, 50% of Australia's Muslims live in Sydney. 30, 35% live in Melbourne. Uh, so we've got the, the, the big concentrations here and there. I, I don't sense that there's this uh, a fear. Um, we were out on Burke Street the day after the attack there on November the 9th so the next morning we were there with setting up our table and people you know were um, sorry about what had happened but I didn't sense that there was a fear about it so uh, that's that's a good thing. 
Bernie, let's get into some of the mechanics of the Muslim mindset here because in our first part of our conversation over this past half hour, we've established that the majority, uh, almost the complete uh, majority of attacks are coming from an Islamic mindset. If we're talking about the mechanics, how do we discuss the motivation that people have for actually doing terror attacks? What are your thoughts? Yeah, some people think that that um, it's a a relatively recent uh, uh, phenomenon, but in fact, uh, violent um, Islam and Islamism has has quite a long history. When we go back and look at the Quran, we look at the the life of Muhammad, we find significant violence that was taking place during that period. In the first twelve, sorry, the first ten years of Muhammad's preaching, the first twelve years of Muhammad's preaching, he was in Mecca where he was born and grew up, and there his preaching was via, sorry was peaceful, and he encouraged people to forgive others and to not retaliate. But then um, in 622 AD, he was now 52 years old. Uh, he moved to Medina, and there his teaching and his activities took quite a different turn. He took up the sword and began to attack other communities, and he claimed that the basis for this was revelations that he'd been receiving from uh, Allah via the angel Gabriel. Um, And so we find in the Quran today about 400 verses which um, describe or endorse or command fighting. And so radical Muslims go back to these texts and say this is uh, the basis for us um, being involved in in violence now. We have a a justification in the life of Muhammad and in the Quranic texts. Okay, when we've got 400 verses that command fighting, uh, some people would be saying, well, surely people can contextualise that and say that was great for the 7th century, but it ought not to be applying today. But it does apply today. How do you describe the way that it is applied and the fervency by which people are applying those texts? Yeah, I, I think your, your first point's important, that, um, and we need to recognise that the vast majority of Muslims are, are peaceful and they don't, they're not involved in violence. You know, we've got 600,000 Muslims here in Australia. We've had some of them living with us recently. Uh, we have them as uh, um, people that we work with. The, the, the guy who uh, did the uh, operation on my skin cancer was a, um, a Muslim guy. Most Muslims in Australia are very peaceful people and, and that's the way that they, they want to live and often that's the reason that they've come to Australia to escape the violence in their own countries. So, But for those who uh, take this radical interpretation of the scripture, they would say, well, the violence that Muhammad did in the later part of his life abrogated the peaceful verses that he found in, in the earlier part. Those who don't take that path would say, we need to interpret these verses contextually Muhammad was, as you say, someone living in the 7th century. He was in a situation of conflict. He therefore resorted to violence. We're no longer there. We're not in the same situation. We don't need to resort to violence. So it depends on how you're going to um, interpret or exegete the, the text that's there before you. Okay, a question might be, will the uh, events that are terror-related uh, ever stop? I mean, we might uh, contextualise that to Australia or we might actually include uh, nations around the world. Uh, is that a relevant question to be asking, Bernie Power? Uh, will mm. terrorism ever stop? 
Yeah, it's interesting because Muhammad actually spoke about this. He said, um, jihad will be performed continuously since the day Allah sent me as a prophet, that is right from, from the time that he was called, until the last member of my community will fight against Dijal, that is the Antichrist, and so he's talking about something in the in the future. Um, Muslims have this belief about the Antichrist coming, and there being a battle, and then the final day coming. And he said, jihad will continue from the very beginning right up until the very end. So his expectation was that there would be um, violence, and um, in the Quran, Muslims are told to fight against the unbelievers until the religion of Islam prevails over all other religions, and that's in Surah 8, verse 39. So uh, the command is for people to be involved in that, and and even when a country becomes 100% Muslim, as in some of the countries that we lived in, the fighting doesn't stop. Um, it continues on. So I think that there's always going to be some kind of um, violent terrorism. It's interesting, uh, just yesterday at the uh, conference in Melbourne, the um, Assistant Commissioner of Police said um, he didn't think that the terrorism level would come down soon in the short term. He said, I don't think it's going to change anytime soon, not in my lifetime, probably. So he had quite a, a pessimistic uh, perspective based on his uh, um, security analysis of of where terrorism is going to continue, how it's going to continue to affect uh, Australia and other nations. So, are security authorities doing all they can to prevent uh, and to stop terror attacks? Is something we ought to be supporting because it's not going away anytime soon. I note that the participants in that international terror conference. Of course, uh, it's being held in Australia. So Australia, the US, the UK and Canada, these are Western nations. Uh, is this something, and I noted that, that those were the primary nations that were participating. What is the the idea that, you know, that these Western nations that we're so aligned with uh, are the ones who are really trying to make a prevention here? Have others given up on the idea? Uh, what are your thoughts about those nations uh, discussing the way that they're moving forward? Yeah, so, so there are other ones. I suppose we have, because we've got about historical relations with the, uh, those other countries, there's also representation from Singapore in this conference. So um, um, uh, there'll be a speaker, a keynote speaker from a, an anti-terrorism unit in Singapore. Um, and uh, just last week they had a big, a massive 3,000 people uh, at um, an anti-terrorism expo in Singapore itself. So some countries are doing it well. Singapore, along with Hong Kong, probably the only two major world cities that haven't had a terrorist attack. Uh, all of the others have. Um, and different countries will deal with it in different ways. So uh, I think because uh, Australia and the UK and the US um, and Canada have got a fair bit in common in terms of their views and their values and they think cooperation in this is a good idea. Bernie, what are your thoughts on the idea that if we're nice to those people, uh, radicals, that they'll leave us alone, that they won't worry anymore? What is it that they think about Australians uh, that makes us even a target? Mm, yeah, it's interesting uh, when uh, uh, getting our... Um, 
uh, interactions with the people on the Muslim tables in the city, uh, they let us know what they think about us. And again, you know, these are not necessarily representative of all Muslims. In fact, they're not representative of all Muslims. They, they tend to be people down the fundamentalist end of the spectrum. And one of the guys, every time he sees me, he says to me, um, you are najis. He uses a term from the Quran, which uh, means uh, filthy. Uh, or unclean that's taken from Surah 9 verse 28 um, because that's his perspective on people who don't follow Islam. So there's a kind of a, uh, a, a distaste um, or revulsion about Australia and what it stands for from the perspective of uh, uh, some of these groups and that they really want to see a change uh, that, which is why they're out there promoting Islam in that they want to see uh, Australia become more Islamic and to reflect their values and they're not happy with the kind of values that they see um, uh, being lived out here in Australia at the moment. When we talk about the conflict between world religions, uh, we can appreciate that uh, there are, you know, those who are radical Islamists and uh, they've got their problems. And I know this goes back to the Quran too about their, uh, the way that they treat the Jews and the Christians, uh, the people of the book. So we know that there's a, a religious conflict that has gone on for centuries over that. But for those who are in Australia saying, oh, we're trying to distance ourselves from this idea of being religious. We're going secularized. And we're letting people do all sorts of things that, according to faith tradition, are considered very, very immoral. And uh, the idea that, uh, you know, we'll try and turn a blind eye to people who hate us and try and uh, try and lay low. What are your thoughts about about this whole idea of unclean? Because while Christians and Jews might be considered unclean, those who have no religion at all, is, is it the case that they're sort of there is even less valuable? What are your thoughts? Yes. And, and they, they often they'll classify um, and talking with these guys, they'll often say, "Well, we think that Australia is a is a Christian country, and therefore all the things that happen here are necessarily kind of accepted or endorsed by Christianity." And we'll you know we'll argue with them about that and uh, have a discussion. But because they come from um, and, and most of these guys were born overseas um, or have grown up here in um, uh, Islamic context, they have this concept within uh, the within Islam of the ummah or the the community that everyone is a part of. That there's not the idea that they have that we have in Australia of freedom of uh, religion, freedom of choice, freedom of conscience. That people may choose to hold different views. For them, it's very much everyone seems to hold this um, uh, monolithic kind of perspective which is not the reality, of course. You, you do find very liberal Muslims, you find traditional Muslims, you find radical Muslims, you find all kinds of different Muslims. But often they have this idealised perspective of what the Muslim world is like um, and then they look at Australia and they say, this doesn't conform, therefore this needs to change. So if you're Najis or unclean, uh, this idea of what the Muslims want to do to you, and let's just say, uh, let's just not uh, blanket all Muslims here, but to say those who are on a more radical 
extremist Islam, what they might want to do to you, uh, this means that uh, that there's an awful lot more people who would assume that uh, that they'd want to take action against Christians and those who are in a secular uh, state of Australia, uh, that they'd be wanting to take some sort of action. Is that the case? Yeah, and it's interesting when um, they arrested the um, uh, the three guys. Um, sorry, no, this was another one. Uh, um, they had a court case in the fifteenth of November in Melbourne. Four men were uh, had been arrested uh, for attempting to uh, a pl- planning a terror attack on Christmas in two thousand and sixteen. So it's taken this long for their court case to come up. And they asked them, you know, why are you doing this? And one of them said, well, Australia kills and bombs Muslims overseas regardless of age, gender, whatever. The act of terrorism on my people makes legitimate that uh, citizens of Australia deserve the same thing, the same treatment that we are treated. And so they're, they're acting out of a, uh, a blanket uh, desire for revenge And they would say that doesn't discriminate whether it's male, female, um, adult, child, you know, combatant or non-combatant. Every person becomes a legitimate target according to that kind of ideology. Bernie, I don't know how you quantify how many within any Muslim community might hold these more radical extremist views. Uh, But even as we're talking, I get the impression that Extremism is not uh, is, is extremism is is categorised with an awful lot more people than than what we might thinking might be thinking about those few that might take action. There's a, certainly a bigger extremism. How, is there is there any way that you can quantify? I've heard over the years uh, this idea of fifteen percent of Muslim people would uh, be categorised in this extreme category. Uh, any thoughts on on how you would quantify those sorts of things? Yeah, yeah, that figure of 15% actually comes from, uh, from Muslim sources. They would say if you put the whole Muslim community on a spectrum, about 70% would be what they'd call traditional, people who are simply living out their faith. 15% would be liberal, uh, so, so Muslims who really no longer practice their faith but uh, just maintain it as a, a cultural identity. And uh, at the other end, 15%, they would say, would be radical or fundamentalist. Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to be involved in violence, uh, but it means that they would hold this view that the uh, Islam should rule, um, Islam needs to expand, uh, and that people should be uh, converted to Islam or be forced to submit to Islam. So that would be their perspective. Now, how they do that could be like these guys setting up tables on the street and, and calling people to Islam or the, um, at the, the more, more extreme end of actually engaging in violence to try and intimidate the population into accepting Islam. Well, if we took that 15% uh, in the number of all Muslims in the world, uh, the numbers are a little bit scary because that comes to around about 300 million people who would be uh, the sorts of people who'd be qualifying in that uh, more extreme end of Islam who want to hurt and dominate all non-Muslims. Uh, 300 million people, it just rolls off the tongue fairly easy, but that's an awful lot of people, Bernie. Mm, yeah, 
and and many of them are living in in Muslim countries. So you know, they're uh, three hundred million is about the size of the world's Arab um, population. Uh, they're living in the Middle East, which is where a lot of them are concentrated, or maybe in countries like uh, Indonesia or uh, Pakistan or India. Um, and so we don't have much contact with them, uh, and and often they tend to be uh, down the the poorer end of the spectrum. There are some very wealthy Muslim countries like Qatar and Saudi Arabia and the Emirates and uh, other places, but um, most Muslims are living in poverty, so they're not really in a position to do much about it in a material sense. They simply hold these views, but uh, they often don't act on them. Let's take a call. Michael is on the line from Western Australia. Hello, Michael. Welcome. Good morning. Listen, guys, thank you. The massive, great big Christian loving hug to you both because this is a discussion that cannot be had in my country of birth, okay? Um, and I'm so wonderful for it. This, the 15%, I think, is low, okay? Um, extremely low because then you have those that won't oppose. Yeah, it's, I call it the Neville Chamberlain. They give up without even fighting. Um, this is such a subject that cannot... And, and, and must not be ignored. And you guys are the only people, either in Australia or the UK, that seem to be having this on any form of public platform. And thank you. Merry Christmas to you both, guys. And God bless you. Uh, Michael, uh, just uh, before I let you go, uh, just one little uh, question, because uh, we're talking the UK here. You're saying that 15% number must be pretty low, and you're talking about your own experience of the communities that you've come from in the UK. Uh, the idea of that being a low number, you're saying that it's a lot more widespread once you have communities that are forming enclaves and and becoming solid parts of a community within a nation. Is that what you're saying? Oh, oh most definitely. Listen, it didn't take a lot of really vicious, nasty um, Nazis yeah, to control the rest of the German population. You get 15% of the right type of people and they will control as many of the others as you want. The, the ridiculous thing, um, Trump said something about no-go areas in London, which was saying, oh, no, no, no. There's been no-go areas in London for 25 years. Okay. Not 25 months, 25 years. There's no-go areas in Birmingham. There's no-go areas in Rochdale. There's no-go areas in 20-plus towns where you and I could not walk along the street without being harassed. If your wife or my wife or our daughters walked along with, with just modest clothing on, we would be harassed because of what they're wearing. And we're talking about being harassed by six-foot-six tall blokes with big beers and caftans. We're not talking about a gentle, excuse me, would you mind, would you consider, the type of thing you'd get if you go to the Vatican and they ask you to cover your head or something. Honestly, it, it's... And that 15% that is, that is the serious hardcore, they control the rest of them. Try and find, try and find in England or Australia or France or Germany, yeah, a, 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 a group of uh, some Muslim group, whatever you want to call them, the UK Muslim group, whatever. Find them will actually stand up and say the expression, not in my name, not in the name of my faith. They won't do it because they are 
under the thumb. They are frightened. They know that they'll get into more trouble. Hmm. Michael, great to hear from you and really important things that you're talking about. Uh, Bernie Power, running short of time, uh, let me just ask you if if there are some of those no-go areas developing in Australia that you are aware of, because we haven't got a lot of time here, but uh, your thoughts uh, based on what Michael is saying about what's happening in the UK? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Australia doesn't seem to have got to the stage yet. One of my colleagues works worked in the UK for 12 years, and he said we're probably about 10 years behind. I'm not aware of any no-go areas in Australia. I travel in the Muslim community a lot and visit mosques and whatever, and not that I'm not getting that perspective. We've probably done the, the multicultural, multi-ethnic thing a little bit better than... Um, England where they've maybe formed some um, ghettos and that kind of thing so that hasn't happened and I think it's important that we don't allow that to happen Thank you so much to Michael from WA for your insights and we are running out of time very quickly uh, Bernie Power, there's so much more to say and we might need to wait till the new year now to have another opportunity to continue talking some more about these sorts of topics but uh, just to point people to Melbourne School of Theology because that's where you're a lecturer in missiology and a lecturer with the Centre for the Study of Islam. This is your life. You talk about these things uh, often and continuously and uh, you're even spending your, uh, your time on a Saturday uh, at the State Library in Victoria and talking to people about religion on the street. You are an expert on comparative religion and I know that there'll be some people who might be wanting to make personal contact with you and I'll point them to the uh, website for the Melbourne School of Theology which is very easy mst.edu.au mst.edu.au and I'll remember I'll remind uh, listeners too uh, that there is a national security hotline because with the probable threat Uh, to uh, our security by way of a terror attack, a probable terror attack. Uh, The number to call if you see anything unusual is 1-800-123-400. And uh, an important number to uh, to remember, to write down, to know that there is a hotline that you can call to help authorities to combat uh, what we're seeing as some levels of extremism. Uh, Dr. Bernie Power, it's just great getting your insights. I thank you so much for being so open and uh, sharing your knowledge, sharing your faith, uh, sharing your understanding and being so open to talk about the comparative nature of what it is to be a Christian Uh, compared to what a threat looms uh, with those who are on extremist level of Islam. Uh, Bernie Power, thanks for being with us once again today on 2020. Thank you so much. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.